Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Grass withers, the flower fades, word of our God stands forever. Today we're looking at the, a colossal cornerstone in, in the book of Philippians, this Passage uh, Philippians is is incredibly quotable. Um, You can look on uh, the Christian bookshelves and whatever of different coffee mugs and whatever, and you'll see a large percentage of them pulling passages out of Philippians. And this is one of these sections that just sings all on its own. It's uh, when you get into trying to preach on this, it's almost I don't I don't even know where to pick up this this just reading it on its own carries such a voice of what Paul is saying, this cornerstone about the grand reality of what we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul has been working all the way up into this point, emphasizing the unity of the church around the gospel, how the church is to be united and held together by this good news of what Christ has done, how the church is to be rejoicing around this reality and the advance of the gospel, that they're rejoicing that, remember, Paul's in jail at this point, and he says the gospel is spreading even to the guards, and so therefore he rejoices. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is going forward. They are to rejoice in the advance of the gospel and live in obedience to the gospel following the example of their Savior who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but he emptied himself, being made in human form and taking on the form of a servant, obedient to death, even death upon a cross in service to, to, to us. This call for acts of selfless love for one another within the church, all grounded upon the reality of the high value of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the whole, the high value of Christ himself. And so this morning we dive in. I've, 
I've flipped forward a few times as we've been going through the book to this section because so much of Paul's ability to rejoice in the midst of suffering comes from how he views the high value of, of the gain of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're taking a deeper dive into, into this passage. He starts off at the beginning of the chapter with this, um, um, like this desire. He says, finally, my brothers, like he's going to give a summary. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And I don't know this, but it's almost like he's, oh yeah, I've, I've said rejoice many times. Joy is one of the main themes of Philippians. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then he says, hey, to write the same thing to you is no trouble for me, and it is safe for you. This call for the Christian to rejoice, to remember the beauty of the gospel, and to rejoice. And Paul's not ashamed and saying over and over again, therefore, I don't really have a lot of shame over Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, emphasizing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? It's no trouble for me to say again and again, you are a sinner in need of a Savior, and we have this Savior in Jesus Christ. It's no trouble for me, and what else is it? It's safe for you to hear continually this call, this gospel message. And then he launches into this warning, look out for the dogs. Look out for the dogs. Now, this is where I always insert my joke, that's the mailman verse. Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. Look out for the dogs, all right? That, that's, not, that's not what he's talking about. But uh, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. The, the dog term is this, it's this derogatory label to these, this people that Paul is evidently writing against. We, we could have spent a lot of time introducing the book. If you remember the first sermon in this series, I didn't really do a lot of introduction um, about who Paul is fighting against because I knew it was going to come up later who these people are. And so we didn't spend a lot of time there, but now we can kind of see there's some controversy. There's division going on in the church, which we'll get to in chapter 4 with Yodia and Syntyche. But there, in, in addition to division within the church, there also is opposition from outside of the church of this group who evidently is trying to bring back ritual ceremonial law among the Philippian church. They're, they're usually called the Judaizers or Judaizers, Judaizers, however you want to say that. And it is a people group who is trying to introduce into the Christians back, they're trying to introduce back into them the Jewish ritual of circumcision, saying that, okay, it's great that you've trusted Christ. Now we need to make you more Jewish. Here are some ceremonial laws that you should keep in addition to trusting Christ. Paul says, those, watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those who are preaching circumcision. Watch out for those who are trying to get you to mutilate the flesh. They're trying to add something to the gospel. We could spend a lot of time on that, but anytime you're trying to add something to the message of grace... It is a perversion of the gospel. You, you may think you're adding to the gospel, but when you add to God's message of grace that Jesus Christ lived the righteous life you should have lived, died the death that you deserve, so that everyone who repents and trusts in Christ could be forgiven of their sins, reconciled to God, adopted into His family, and as so long as they also do this, you negated the whole gospel. You just made the whole thing worthless because it's no longer grace. 
Right? We, we hold that man is justified by grace, not by works. The minute you add anything to it, you've just thrown grace away and you've said, no, it's actually this one work. I don't care if it's one work. It's the minute you bring one of those in for justification, you negate the whole gospel. Paul says, watch out for those dogs. That's why he's glad to say the gospel over and over and over again to them. It's the good news of what Christ has done. The, the news of what you must do is never good news. Don't fool yourself. It's never good news. Any news that says this is what you have to do because the one time you fail in that one thing you have to do, you're out of luck. Never good news to add anything what you should do. So he's fighting against these people and he says, now listen, verse 3, for we are, Paul says, we are the circumcision. We are those, and how are they the circumcision? We are those who worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. This isn't about what I do. This is about what God has done. We are the circumcision, worship by the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, often when you hear that kind of talk, it makes you think of someone who's mainly just jealous of those who are doing better than they are. So it's, you can hear Paul saying, you know, uh, these guys, they want you to do all these righteous rules. They want you to, yes, trust Jesus, sure, but then also do all these other things. And so Paul says, oh, you don't need all those other things. You know, um, we, don't, we don't trust. We're the real circumcision. He sounds like this person who's kind of, oh... For an example, this is a hypothetical person in my mind, but take a band nerd that was no good at football or basketball or any sports. And so they just, they hung out in the band room. That's all, that's who they were. And you'd come and talk to them about sports and they'd say something like, football is the dumbest sport that there ever was. What that is, is not an honest uh, uh, objection to the game of football, right? That is a person who is poor at football, making a defense of their own self by trying to demean that, the other sport, to demean that which they're not able to do. Or it's like the, um, the football person who's really good at the sports and saying, uh, you know, I don't like our, uh, the arts and music and beauty and all those things are dumb. That's, it's, not, it's because it's a good chance. It is, you can't have both of those things. But you understand that what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that um, it feels like Paul is saying, could be saying, we're the, we're the real ones. They are, and it's as though Paul's saying, um, I can't measure up. So I'll, what I'm going to do is I'm going to create a category of person that doesn't even need those things, right? Oh, I don't, you don't need to circumcision. You don't need all these laws. You don't need all these uh, abilities to do all of these things. It's like he's insecure. And Paul almost knows that's what you would think. Like the reason why he says, oh, they're not the real Christians we are, is because he can't be a real Christian. Not at all. Not at all. Paul, verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. He's the, he's the music nerd who's saying, no, I actually am really good at football as well. He's like the anomaly of someone who's good at everything. Paul comes out and he says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, this, this other way, they're trying to get people to, to trust in the gospel and in their works. Paul's saying, no, don't trust in your works, trust in Christ. Because by the way, if, if it was trusting in works, Paul says, I aced that test. If anyone else thinks he has reason and confidence in the flesh, Paul says, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, very important tribe, a Hebrew of Hebrews, 
as to the law of Pharisees, so he was a lawyer, he knew the law per- perfectly, he just would study, would memorize the Torah, he knows the law. As to zeal, he wasn't someone who just knew a lot, he's out actively persecuting the church, uh, trying to arrest and imprison those who would oppose the Jewish faith. He's a persecutor over the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, Paul is not there saying he was without sin. He was saying he's a good Pharisee. He was saying you give him a rule book, he's going to keep it. Now, is his heart blameless? No. Paul himself knows that that's not true. But as to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. So, Paul is saying if, if, it's, if, if, if they were able to be Christ and something else, Paul could be all in on that. He would be all in on that because he's got that all nailed down. But what does he go on and say if it's gospel plus anything else? He says, whatever gain I had in verse 7, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. He counts everything, all of these things that would merit him so much favor, all of these things that would give him such a good reputation, all of this accomplishment that even his opponents would be glad to have themselves. How does Paul count it? He says it's loss. It's nothing. I count it as rubbish. He gives up all of these gains for this one great gain. You know, we're eager to give up in life the things we don't like. Where, where many people come into the, the popular church today upon promises that God will help them and deliver them from what they don't want and will give them all the things they do want, right? It, that, that Paul, that if you come into the church, everything you don't like, God's going to fix that. And everything you would like to have happen, God's going to make it happen. Paul doesn't use that kind of language for his conversion to Christ. He's communicating that all the things that the people in his culture and in his time longed to have, consider them as loss. He was the elite. He had status. He was looked up to. He had a promising future. He had pedigree. He had promise. And what does he say? I don't, it's all law. I don't, that, is not, that means nothing to me. He counts it all as loss. And we cannot miss the other end of this declaration. Paul isn't just saying, I mean, so Paul is just throwing away all kinds of good things. What kind of a foolish move is that? We can't miss the other end. I count it all as rubbish. Why? Why does Paul not value all these things that are clearly value? It wasn't valuable. It wasn't just self-hate like Paul thought, I'm just going to be, I'm just going to throw all these good things away. It wasn't self-hate that motivated him to this attitude. What happens was that Paul had a clear view of an incomparable treasure. He had found a gain so great that all losses wouldn't even be felt. And all other gains look to be nothing. He found something so great that no loss was going to steal it away. And any other gain didn't hold a candle to the gain that he had found. What is that gain? Kind of our main idea for the Christian this morning from this passage this morning is that the gain of Christ is the unshakable or the joy-filling foundation of the Christian life. The gain of Christ 
is the joy-filling foundation of the Christian life. Paul's gain is the gain of knowing Christ Jesus, right? He says, whatever gain I have in verse 7, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish, trash, garbage, everything, garbage, in order that I may gain Christ. Paul's gain is the gain of knowing Christ Jesus, of being found in Him, of knowing the righteousness and the resurrection life that is found in Christ so that the Christian is then empowered to go on and share in the sufferings of Christ, losing things in this life, sharing in the sufferings of Christ, sharing in the selflessness of Christ, that all these sufferings that come in this life and still not lose the rejoicing that comes from the gain of Christ. What is so special about this righteousness that it can cause someone like Paul to say all these amazing accolades, they're nothing compared to this gain of Christ. And all of these awful, hard things going on in Paul's life. You know, Epaphroditus nearly dies. Read at the end of chapter 2. And he says, God spared him. Epaphroditus lived so that Paul might be spared sorrow upon sorrow. He's, he's sorrowing. Paul's got sorrows, but he's calling for rejoicing. How is he able to do this? He knows of this value of being found in Christ, gaining Christ, having a righteousness that comes from Christ. What is so special about this righteousness? How is it something that valuable? Well, Martin Luther calls this alien righteousness. And that's not a sci-fi term. He doesn't mean it's from a different planet. It's from Mars. It's an alien uh, righteousness. He means it's, the Latin term for it is extra nos. I know you all love when I go Latin. Extra nos. It's outside of yourself is what the Latin means. This is a righteousness that is from outside of you. It's nothing from inside. Nothing you create. Nothing you work up. It's an alien righteousness. It's foreign to you. This righteousness that comes, it's outside of yourself. A great hindrance in our culture today is the failure to realize the lack of righteousness that individuals have before a holy and righteous God. An unawareness, an inability to admit, I am a sinner. That before a holy and righteous God, I don't have an ounce of righteousness. There's no part of me that isn't stained with sin. Total depravity is the doctrine that we call that. There's this really real resistance to any idea of alien righteousness. And essentially what we believe in our culture today is that what we must do is work up the righteousness from within us. Bring up the good from within us that we might become pleasing to God. We create our righteousness or we grow our righteousness. There's a seed of righteousness in everyone that if enough water and enough sunlight and play it soft music, then this righteousness will blossom and grow and God will see it and therefore you will be saved, merit God's favor. That is not the biblical message. The biblical message is that the righteousness that comes from Christ is totally foreign, alien righteousness. You have no righteousness in and of yourself. There is no one righteous. No, not one, Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, quoting from the Psalms. This righteousness does not come from Paul. It does not come from himself. It comes by faith to him. 
It is a gift that no matter how hard he could have worked to earn, he could not do it. Yet something so priceless, if you had all that you had to buy it, you couldn't purchase it. This righteousness that is needed, this spotless righteousness before a holy and righteous God, nothing you can work up, nothing you can purchase, too valuable, it's priceless. You can't put a tag on it. And what we're, 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 we're hopeless, we're helpless, we're lost without it. And what does God do? Through faith in Christ, He gives the righteousness of His Son to those who are His. It is a righteousness from God. It's not something we earn or something that is, is worked up. It's just something that is given to the one who has faith in Christ. In our natural state, we are empty of any good that would merit God's favor. We are sinners who are piling up wrath upon wrath. And so long as we continue down that path, we may have many temporal joys, but they will all lead to final and eternal punishment, which is why the good news is good news. That's why the gospel is such good news. Because there is a righteousness to be given through faith in Christ. What's given this in undissolvable union with God through Jesus Christ. You are adopted into his family. This, if, if you have been given this righteousness, if you have been purified in the eyes of God, washed white as snow, as the hymn we sang earlier, washed white as snow, what does this, how could God now, that you are in Christ before him, how could God look at you and turn away? He can't. He won't. He couldn't. This righteousness which you have been given, you could not afford, but would pay anything and everything to have, is freely given in our union with Christ. This is a possession of such value that all other good things become as nothing. I said that we were going to look in 2 Corinthians. We're going to try to flip a few pages back. Uh, if you got your Bible out, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 4. My notes say 1 Corinthians. But I'm pretty sure it's 2. Yes, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is page 1147 in your uh, Pew Bible. Paul writing kind of on this same topic of how in the world are you to go through all this suffering yet remain rejoicing in the midst of all the difficulties of life. But we have, verse 7, we have this treasure. What's the treasure? The knowledge. Look up at verse 6. Given the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Speaking of the light of the gospel. This knowledge of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. We have this treasure, the knowledge of the gospel, where? In jars of clay. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Death is at work in us, but life in you. Verse 13, since we have... Let's want to jump on down, verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, if that isn't an accurate description of our age, I don't know what is. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, oh, what a funny term Paul uses there. 
light, momentary affliction? Anybody gone through suffering in this life? I know you have. Lost someone you love? Call that a light, momentary affliction? Paul's in jail, losing people that he loves, people being murdered for the faith. Light, momentary, what is he on? To say, talk like that. This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He says that this is a light momentary affliction. Why? Because of the weight of glory that is being piled up for us as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul is speaking on this same issue, this infinite worth of Christ, that so valuable is it that no amount of terror in this life can truly steal the joy that you have in knowing and being Christ. This is what grabbed the hold of Paul. This is what made him able throughout all of his suffering and struggle in his life to rejoice in the gain of having Christ. That what he has in Christ is something that cannot be stolen away. It's like the parable of the um, hidden treasure in Matthew chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he sells all that he has. Wait a second. <laughs> he sells all that he has? It isn't like he sells all the things. He's found a great treasure buried in a field. And so what does he do? He thinks, ah, I got to need to make some money. I want to buy that field. Let's see. I don't want this. I don't want this. I don't need this. I'm going to sell the things I don't want and get enough money to buy the one more thing I want to add to the things I want. That's, that's how you'd expect this to go. This man gets rid of everything. He sells it all. And it, the Bible says, he, Jesus says, in his joy, he sells everything. That he might have this one treasure. That he would go and buy this field. Sells all that he has in joy for the gaining of this one great thing. Who would do that with joy? The one who knows that what they are to gain is something of incomparable value. Darla and I went to... Um, uh, a new surgeon this week. She had to change her uh, surgeon. It, she's doing good in regards to her cancer and all that stuff. There's just a few surgeries possibly on the horizon for her. So we're just going and trying to set and talk about these things. And toward the end of our conversation with this surgeon, we'd met her before, but we're just kind of talking a little more. 20, 25 minute conversation. We begin to go through, she says, well, you guys have been through kind of a lot. And kind of recounting the event with Jana over the New Year's of, of 2016 and then all of that recovery and surgery and all of that kind of nightmare and then a, a summer of recovery and then September comes along and, and we find Darla's cancer and, and like, yeah, 2016 was a tough year. And um, it started 2017 was kind of a uh, tough start. And none of you are unfamiliar with, I'm not holding myself up as the unique individual. We all have our sufferings. But we were talking to these things, and, and the surgeon made this comment. She says, after this, and, and you're still smiling after all of that. And we just didn't even know what to say. <laughs> I had, I, I, and literally, I, I said nothing in response. I, it struck me, I thought, smiling. And as we left and I reflected on it, I just thought, I don't know that smiling is the right word for this. I don't know that smiling, smiling makes it sound as though, ah, I've kept up a good show. Hey, look, I'm happy, smiling. 
And not that, not that joy doesn't produce smiles. I'm not trying to, to knock smiling as it is. But it, it had an air of, yeah, you know, at least you're happy. Is that the word for this? And I suppose, is that what Paul's talking about here? That he's found something that's allowed him to at least put on a good face. I'm happy. You know, is that what he's talking about? For some, I suppose they think that's what Christianity is. is just pretending like everything's great. But if that's all I had to offer here, I would shut the doors. If all I had to offer to you was advice to smile through the hard things of your life and pretend like things are okay, flee from this place. Because that's nothing. Smiles disappear fast. The moment something hard happens, I don't got to preach to you on that, I don't think. If that's what I had to offer here, I would lock up the doors. Life is too real and too difficult to think of that external joy can win the day. What we need here is something far greater, far deeper, far more foundational, far greater, so that we can deal with the sorrows that life hands out. What I wanted to say, you think I'm smiling, I'm sorrowing. I'm lamenting. I'm weeping. Life is hard. You know, in the middle of 2016, talk about the hard year that it was. Some of you might be aware of this. I took on pastoring a, a local congregation. And what happens in the midst of that is you, you link your lives with other people. One of the first jobs I had to do was to bury a man, do a funeral for a man who lost his life doing volunteer work at the neighborhood center. Who takes up? If all I had to say was smile, people, give it up. We need something bigger than just smiles. And that wasn't the first of funerals. Many of you are sitting here. I've performed funerals for your loved ones. And, and I don't want to mean be too sober, but the funerals won't stop either, right? The hospital visits won't stop. The difficult counseling discussions won't stop. How in the world are we going to press on with all the sorrows that this life brings to you? It isn't through fake smiling. It's through grounding ourselves in the solid rock reality. When I have gained Christ, I have gained that which nothing in this world can take away. That's the bedrock foundation I want in all of your hearts and your lives as the world goes up and down and tosses you to and fro. Do you have a gain that is so solid and so secure that when cancer threatens, when life threatens, when life ebbs away, when children rebel, when all things go wrong, you cannot be stormed. You can say you can take it all away. And I consider myself in the call I have gained. I have gained that which the world cannot take away. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing is what Paul says. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Is this your joy today? I'm pleading with you. Make the gain of Christ your sole joy. It is the joy-filling foundation of the Christian life. Coming to the communion table, confessing for the first time maybe or for the thousandth time. I don't know. I have nothing in my, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross. I cling naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for aid. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, lest I die. This desire 
this longing, this treasuring of what we have in Christ over everything else. It is the joy-filling foundation of the Christian life. Confess your sinfulness. Despair of your own failure and righteousness and trust in Christ. Take, eat, drink, and rejoice, having gained that which the world cannot take away. It cannot take your eternal joy in Christ with God in His favor forever. Let's pray. God, shine the light of this reality into our hearts. I'm not here to tickle and scratch itching ears. We are aware of the brevity of life and the difficulty of life. And we are desperate, Father, for solid foundations to put our feet upon. You lift us up out of the miry clay and set our feet upon the rock of Jesus Christ. A righteousness that is not our own, but given to us, confessing our sins through faith in Jesus Christ, that we might be reconciled to you, knowing we've been washed by the blood of the Lamb, never to be forsaken. May that be the hope and joy of every heart in this place this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.